Welcome to Clean Law from the Environmental and Energy Law Program at Harvard Law School. In this episode, the director of our Electricity Law Initiative, Ari Pesco, talks with Jason Berwin, Vice President for Policy at the U.S. Energy Storage Association. They discuss new electricity market rules that aim to pay storage resources for the value they provide to our energy system. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This is Ari Pesco, Director of the Electricity Law Initiative. Our topic today is energy storage in interstate wholesale electric markets. And our guest is Jason Berwin, Vice President for Policy at the U.S. Energy Storage Association. Jason, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Absolutely, Ari. Thanks for having me. Sure. So on previous episodes here, we've talked with Jesse Jenkins about RTO energy markets, ancillary service markets with Bill Hogan capacity markets with Jacob Mays. So today we're going to talk about how storage participates in those markets or will participate in those markets in the future, what the challenges and opportunities are, and also what role small-scale storage plays at the local and wholesale levels. But before we get into that, let's talk a little bit about storage itself and what makes it unique. Storage has been called the holy grail of the electricity industry. So Jason, can you explain why storage is the unicorn of the power sector? Oh, it's the unicorn holy grail full of silver bullets. Storage is, I think, a boundary-breaking technology, and that's why folks sometimes have challenges describing it in whatever magical terms they want. Because what you have when you have energy storage, and I think a lot of folks are thinking in particular about battery energy storage, so you have a resource that can not only inject electricity onto the grid, but can also withdraw electricity from the grid, store it, and keep it for when it is most valuable and needed. And there is no other resource that goes both directions. More to the point, not only can storage go both directions, particularly battery storage, is capable of very fast and highly controlled response. So you can ramp that battery to exactly the level of input or output at exactly the moment you want it, provided you have, of course, sufficient state of charge. So that provides an enormous amount of capabilities because what you have is something that allows you from the millisecond through to the hour of the day, the month, and potentially in the future, the season, to decouple time of supply and time of demand, which has, as you know, been long the constraint for how the electric system operates. It's worth noting that storage is not entirely new, that there's been pumped hydro storage for many decades, but those are very different types of facilities because you can only build them in certain locations. They tend to be very large facilities. And it seems like with some battery technologies, one other difference is that you can basically put them anywhere, right? Yeah, that's the thing is 22 gigawatts of pumped hydro storage capability exists on the US grid. As of right now, we have over one gigawatts of battery storage. I think it's 1.3 is the latest number I've seen. And the biggest difference is not just the flexibility of operation, because pumped hydro usually has a transition time as you reverse from pumping into discharging, but also the flexibility of location, as you've noted, that batteries can be installed uh, co-located with generation. They can be directly connected to the transmission system or to the distribution system or they can be located behind a customer meter at a facility or premise, or they can be a part of a microgrid. And because they are, particularly batteries, are modular, you can scale them without necessarily having a change to the core technology. So the core technology of your 
whatever it is, seven kilowatt home battery is the same core technology in a 100 megawatt central station battery. And so the other sort of religious metaphor I've heard around storage is that it breaks the holy trinity of generation, transmission, and distribution because of all the flexible properties that you've just mentioned. It can basically do anything. And so not only have people have had a trouble describing what storage is because it can do so many things, but regulators have had trouble figuring out what to do with storage because it doesn't fit easily into the traditional regulatory boxes. So I want to talk a little bit about some of the challenges that you've seen for storage in the wholesale markets. A year and a half ago, FERC issued a landmark order called Order 841 that requires the market operators, the regional transmission organizations, to effectively create new rules that ensure storage can provide all the values to the market that it's technically capable of providing. Before we get to that, I want to back up and say, what precipitated that? What were some of the challenges that storage was seeing in the market? Prior to that order, storage had been sort of making, I would say, uneven progress across the U.S. In particular, what we had identified, which went into the input that obviously informed FERC, was that most places had kind of created what I would say a patch for storage. Oh, we'll sort of let you in, but only in these very limited capabilities. And so, for example, a number of markets didn't allow storage to provide anything other than ancillary services, at least not as storage. They might have been able to do so, but you'd have to register, for example, as a conventional generator. Well, storage is not a conventional generator, and so that was sort of an untenable means by which you would put a storage facility into the market to participate outside of, say, ancillary services. And I think that's really the crux of this order, was a recognition that we should not be trying to squeeze storage inside the box of generation anymore, precisely because of the value that it can provide with its flexibility and versatility across domains, and that a new participation model, as FERC called it, a way in which you register those assets, the way in which the market looks at them, the way they're modeled, the way they bid, all of these things need to actually take account of the unique physical and operating characteristics of storage, which, as we mentioned at the top of the hour, is this flexible, fast, bi-directional capability. So each of these market operators, these RTOs, does have their own processes for proposing changes to their rules. They have to file changes with FERC and their stakeholder processes in each of these organizations to develop those proposals. Where, I mean, I guess what you were suggesting was some markets were sort of better than others at recognizing the possibilities of storage. Why did FERC have to take this action? Is this something that the markets could have fixed on their own over time? Well, I think that there is a really key impressing difference here between, say, markets moving on their own versus FERC, which is that the technology itself is moving fast, very fast. And the precipitous declines in cost and the concomitant increasing performance capabilities of storage, particularly battery storage, meant that technology was very quickly outpacing policy. And even as RTOs and ISOs might have started to work through stakeholder processes, FERC, I think, in an act of prospective policymaking to catch policy up to technology, said, no, 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 no. This has to get updated. If we're going to actually have just and reasonable rates, we need the widest range of resources participating in the markets. These resources clearly provide some value, and the constraints on them are they're no longer tenable to have 
from that standpoint. So one of the things that I think that is always a tug of war in these cases, right, is how quickly can you move things sort of through a process at each individual market versus move it through the commission and some of the sort of ironing out of individual markets differences. That's always going to be a trade-off. But in this case, I think FERC made the right call and said, no, this is moving too fast. We can't wait for all these processes to kind of figure it out. Let's talk about Order 841 a little bit. You said it requires each RTO to develop what FERC calls a participation model for storage. What are the key features of participation models? Sure. So one is this concept that storage should be able to participate in all market services it's technically capable of providing. So as long as you can show that technical capability, there should not be a limitation to participating. Another is the way in which storage bids or otherwise reflects its unique operating and physical characteristics. So the ability to, for example, have a recognition that you have a state of charge, that is to say you have a limited amount of energy in the tank, so to speak, and that you should be able to reflect that in your participation in the market. There was another, you know, and I'm sort of listing the high-level directives here. Another part of that participation model is kind of a bit of housekeeping over making sure that the buying and selling of energy from storage devices factors into the actual LMP formation. This is a key one, that the minimum size for participation in the markets be reduced down to 100 kilowatts. That is to say that markets must allow units of at least 100 kilowatt in size to participate in the markets. And then finally, to make sure that the accounting for that energy, particularly for storage that might be distribution connected, bearing in mind that 100 kilowatt sizes may oftentimes bring you into the distribution system, that there needs to be some way in which there is a capability of accounting for and having telemetry or some means by which you differentiate wholesale transactions from retail transactions. At a very high level, those are the things. But of course, for each of those main items, there's a number of different directives. I think someone at one point counted 72 specific directives, and I'm happy to jump into any specific ones of those you want to talk about. I'll just preview just right now. We're not going to get it. Oh, 72. Uh, but I appreciate that's what the I offer. Do, man. So, from your perspective, did the order check sort of the major issues that you were looking for? Were there are there any big holes in 841 that you're going to eventually come back to FERC and ask them to look at again? I think the key thing to understand here is that Order 841 is foundation setting. There's a whole bunch of things that can still serve as barriers to storage participation in markets outside of Order 841. One such example would be interconnection processes, where there are folks who still have some concerns there. Another might be product design. But Order 841 really concerned itself with just setting the foundation to enable storage to participate in the markets as given today. And that's really important, partly because, of course, it allows these assets into the market so that you can have a wider range of competitive resources and ultimately help contribute to more competitive price formation. But also because as you start to reflect storage's capability in these markets, you're creating a foundation for more flexible operation of the markets themselves. And I think this is something that folks have started to kind of get at when they think about, for example, hybridizing storage resources with generation, whether that's wind and solar or something else. You have greater opportunities here for how the market 
models, dispatches these assets to fundamentally enable more flexibility. In terms of your question about what FERC might need to take on next, you know, there's a lot of different terrain there. And I think that market design for market products in terms of flexibility, for interconnection processes, specifically how storage is studied for interconnection, this hybrid resource issue I mentioned where there are barriers for hybrid resources, there's plenty of grist to keep working on. That's a helpful framing that this is really just a foundation. And one thing that you just made me think of was there's a separate, what have been considered separate proceedings at FERC about price formation in these markets and how prices can incentivize fast-performing resources, flexible resources. And it seems like those proceedings are key to unlocking storage's value as well. The first such instance of this was Order 755, which created this concept of pay for performance in the ancillary services market, a recognition that the speed and precision of a response, particularly for frequency regulation, is a really valuable thing. This is what undergirded eventual creation of the first economic market for storage worldwide, which was PJM's fast regulation market. That concept of pay for performance, obviously, in Order 755, was focused more narrowly. But I think this idea has generally broader appeal, and you're starting to see it come up, maybe not as much in an ancillary services discussion, as perhaps potentially in a capacity-style discussion. You're starting to see discussions about, so for example, CalISO has a flexible RA product, right? Where they're trying to say there's an aspect of resource adequacy here that as in California, we go to higher and higher levels of variable renewable generation. We're going to have ramps that require a different kind of resource for the purposes of maintaining reliability on the system. So that's just an example. But this idea that the performance of these assets, you might need to take into account different attributes in a capacity construct than just firm delivery some amount of time out. Oh, okay. Right, I see. So basically, one criticism of capacity markets has been that they procure this generic capacity product and don't necessarily meet both the policy needs of states and also now the sort of technical needs. Yeah, that's conversations that are starting up in certain places, like, for example, in New York right now, where the PSC has opened a docket to explore some of these questions about the sort of role of the ISO in procuring resource adequacy given New York State's prescribed policies on where they're going in energy. And I think New York is 70% renewable by 2030 and 100% carbon-free by 2040. And California, as you mentioned, is on a similar path as well. So when FERC issued Order 841 back a year and a half ago, what this did was it required each of these market operators to effectively propose to FERC how they were going to change their rules. And as I mentioned, that kicks off a stakeholder process at each of these markets, which I imagine you and your members were engaged in. So I'm wondering, what were the aspects of these rule changes that were particularly you know, important for you, and you know, maybe some that were also uh, more controversial than others. Yeah, and you're speaking specifically about the stakeholder process, not the actual compliance plans? I guess I'm kind of curious. These stakeholder processes involve all the various market participants, the utilities, the traditional generators, renewable companies, et cetera. And I'm curious, I imagine there were some aspects of this that there's broad agreement on 
And there's other aspects that were more controversial. And I'm curious what various views are in the industry about how the markets are going to evolve. I mean, you had different conversations in different markets during those processes. Everyone was sort of figuring this out. And I give the technical staff at the RTOs a lot of credit for, in most cases, trying in very good faith to put together some sort of cohesive model for how to bring storage in. But they, you know, they vary in their emphasis and they vary on where I think some of the challenges lay. So for example, one of the aspects that is sort of an interesting question that surfaced from these stakeholder conversations was the use of commitment parameters for energy storage. Because, hey, you have this flexible thing, it has this state of charge parameter, so you're kind of optimizing it around a limited bucket of energy over time. And some markets were very nervous about having commitment parameters for storage because that seemed to complicate the optimization engines that each of these markets run in such a way that they're worried like, oh, we don't want to we don't want to have to try and put this into our day ahead optimizations because this is just going to bog everything down. But in other places, so for example, in I think in New York ISO, there's a desire, okay, we got to put this into the day ahead optimization for resources that are going to show up as capacity resources. Conventional generators basically have to say what, for example, if they're day ahead, they have to put in some sort of bid, some sort of indication of their intention for each of those hours in the next day. And that can obviously change as you get closer to real time and prices fluctuate around where the bids are. But at the end of the day, they're basically making a commitment like, I am going to be online and capable of providing energy if you so call on me to do so. And the reason that's been important for conventional generators is because the big constraint of conventional generation are ramp limitations. You can't start a power plant instantaneously. It usually takes some amount of time to come online from minutes in the case of fast start gas to hours for other kinds of generation. And they can't necessarily move instantaneously up and down in terms of the amount of energy that they can put out on the system. And so as a result of that, a lot of the market logic is based around this idea of making commitments in advance so that when the time comes, particularly if there are certain deviations from what the expected system conditions are, not contingencies, but just, you know, like slight differences in how much energy exactly is needed, these units are there. They're not going to be incapable of responding because those ramp rate limitations have been taken and startup and shut and offline constraints have been taken into account. Whereas for storage, if you think about a battery, it can sit there on the grid. It can, again, respond nearly instantaneously in any direction. And just because it's neither charging or discharging does not mean it is offline. It can be very online and ready to respond even when it's quote-unquote idle. So that is a different concept. And when you translate some of these efforts to create commitment, remember, storage doesn't have fuel. It's not a generator that can just run as long as there's fuel. It has a limited bucket of energy. And so the idea that you commit these assets in advance you have certain things that already start to break down if you're inside of the conventional generator model, which is you can't commit a batteries to discharge every hour of the day because it can't, it won't. It has to have some time to sit and charge back up or to be idle. And so that's just like a very small illustration of how the conventional participation model of generation 
doesn't quite fit for, say, a storage unit. That's why I mentioned this concept of state of charge as a parameter that you enter into those bids, the way in which you say, this is what I expect my future state to look like. By putting in state of charge, you're in some ways saying, I have a future state that will determine exactly what my capability is for the subsequent hours. That's, again, not exactly something that the market software has had to integrate before. And it provides another variable that's somewhat complicated for these big market software engines to optimize around. This is a very wonky and very arcane discussion we're getting into. Well, I'm just sort of curious then, did the RTOs end up coalescing around a single solution to this issue? Or now are markets going in different directions? And so if you're a storage developer, you're going to have a very different set of rules in one market for another and just sort of in in terms of just how to submit your offers on a daily basis. So in this case, markets did go somewhat different directions. As I mentioned, New York ISO wanted to have a day ahead bid of what storage was planning to do if that storage was in its capacity market, right? If you're there for a reliability function. Whereas on the other hand, for example, PJM and ISO New England had no interest in having a day ahead commitments of storage. They said, you will self-schedule and we will just assume that. And I think one of the challenges there is understanding what kind of obligations do you have if you're a storage unit showing up to provide capacity in a market like ISO New England's or PJM, because that's really the connection there. The reason you have these kinds of discussions over commitment is because of this long-running concept of must-offer obligations. The idea that someone who's worried about bad actors in a market, they don't want fuel-based generators holding back their generation to manipulate markets, right? And so a way around that is to have an obligation that you have to continuously be offering and that ensures that there's not some sort of artificial creation of scarcity that's market manipulation. Well, again, with storage, you can't offer it every hour of the day because it will run out of energy in the tank. So at the same time, it's not market manipulation for a storage unit to hold on to its energy saying, listen, I have a limited state of charge. I want to be able to provide value. I see a peak coming later in the day. Don't make me discharge earlier in the day so that I can't hit that peak later in the day and provide that more valuable service. So it seems like the generators in these various markets would have had opinions on on sort of how to account for all of this because it seems like the result now is that generators may be offering into the market in a very different manner than storages and they may have wanted, I guess what I'm, what I'm getting at is maybe it's just sort of a question is, does models for storage do they affect how the traditional generators now offer into the market? At present, they don't because most places created a specific resource type that you register the storage as, as an energy storage resource, right? So you're registering it as that, which means a different set of rules applies than if you register as a type of generator. That shouldn't make it complicated for the generators. What is, I think, sort of on the horizon, though, is this concept of the hybrid resource, the idea that folks are sticking storage onto solar plants, onto wind plants, even onto gas plants and other things. So what happens when you have a hybrid resource? How does it register? Does it register as storage? Does it register as generation? What kinds of constraints and accommodations do you inherit from either of those two? That is a present and challenging issue for the RTOs and ISOs to address 
and one that I think will become a pressing issue as some of these 50 plus gigawatts of hybrid resources make their way through generation interconnection queues. Yeah, so last month, FERC issued its first orders on these RTO compliance filings. They um, issued orders about uh, PJM's filing and SPP's filing. Um, And so my understanding is they, they... if that FERC explicitly um, deferred on this hybrid issue, is that right? It did not undertake it one way or the other, and said that it was out of scope. But overall, looking at the looking at those two orders, did they largely go along with what the RTOs had proposed, or were there significant changes that FERC ordered? So I did want to continue the conversation you said about like what are some of the issues that are coming up across the different markets that Order Eight Forty One is raising. I already talked about sort of commitment and optimization, which is probably the wonkiest and in many respects least interesting because for many folks are just like, whatever, we'll self-schedule, let us alone. Some of the other things that are coming up and which are at least touched upon in the FERC's decision on some of these compliance plans, a key one is the capacity value or capacity qualification of energy storage, right? This was in fact one of the central issues we had identified going into what eventually became Order 841. and through this process has become, I think, probably the most central concern to a lot of folks in the storage industry, certainly with PJM. But let me just back up and say here that just for folks who aren't aware, in FERC's decisions, the first two decisions they released were on PJM and the Southwest Power Pools compliance plans, which were largely accepted. The main thing that FERC picked up on, though, was that capacity qualification of energy storage, which has generally been defined in manuals, that is to say, sort of the non-FERC-reviewed language that each of the markets keeps on hand to help market participants understand how the markets are going to be operated, right? And when you look at capacity qualification, What you're basically saying, in effect, is what kind of contribution do these resources make to resource adequacy? What kind of revenue capability may they have in a capacity market, if you're in a RTO or ISO that has a capacity market? Or at the very least, how does this factor into the RTO's responsibility to account for resource adequacy being met across the system? And FERC sided with ESA on the concept of what is this sort of legal rationale called the rule of reason. It's the idea that if there's some aspect of, of market rules that specifies that I'm going to forget my legal language here. I am not a lawyer, although I play one in FERC dockets. The terms, conditions, and rates of market participation, and if those are susceptible to specification, that is, they can be changed fairly on a whim, as it were, that should be something that is, in fact, in a FERC reviewable tariff. Because at the end of the day, what you are doing is changing the nature of the market service without having FERC review. And so, in taking on that rationale, FERC turned around to PJM and SPP and said, putting aside the rest of your compliance filings, we're going to open up new proceedings. First of all, you need to file in a revised tariff the capacity qualification rules for energy storage resources, and for that matter, for all resources, which we can get back to that, but that was an interesting quirk. 
And secondarily, we're going to open separate paper proceedings to determine the appropriateness of those capacity qualification methods. Right. And so just to make this a little more concrete, my understanding was that PJM had a 10-hour requirement, which would mean that for a storage device to clear the capacity market and get paid for its capacity, it would have to have the capability of discharging for 10 hours. Is that right? Not quite. It's not that you had to be 10 hours or bust. It's that you would be rated to the capacity you could sustain over 10 hours. So for folks who might, for example, create a battery capable of sustained output at its rated capacity for four hours, you'd take a D rate down to you know effectively 40% of your capacity, right? Oh, okay. Great. This really affected how much capacity credit storage would get in PJM and therefore how much they would get paid in the market and how much they would be counted for towards reliability purposes. Correct. And this is important because it's not a purely economic concern. It's really a question of, is the reliability contribution of a storage resource being adequately counted? Because if it's not, then load is paying more for capacity than it needs to. It's not just in reasonable rates, right? And certainly the work that we did in doing, for example, a, a commissioning an estimated load carrying capacity study of storage under different durations in PJM showed that multiple gigawatts of four-hour storage, six-hour storage provide equivalent reliability in PJM today as conventional generators that would otherwise get 100% capacity value. And so so we'll just we'll add this issue to the pile of issues that are pending about the PJM capacity market. Oh yeah, no, I mean, why not? Let's just pile it on, man. <laughs> so the last thing I want to talk about is small-scale storage. You mentioned the 100 kilowatt minimum that, you know, every RTO has to accept storage devices of 100 kilowatts, and so that's going to include distribution level storage. So why is this important for the markets and for the industry? Because if you're a hospital or some other sort of commercial consumer that decides they want to have storage as part of their facility, let's say for reliability reasons, why is it important that these sorts of devices be able to access the wholesale market? From a FERC standpoint, this is about, again, ensuring competition of the full set of resources capable of providing value to the electric system so as to achieve those just and reasonable rates. From the standpoint of a distributed storage owner or operator, there's value here in being able to provide service to whether it's an end user, for example, for helping them manage their bill, or to the distribution system if you, for example, are stabilizing the distribution grid or integrating higher shares of, say, rooftop solar or electric vehicles. But recognizing that those storage devices have the versatility to also provide bulk system services, and that in doing so, you're really fully utilizing these assets, not just to the interest of a storage operator maximize their operating revenues, but also to maximize the value that you're able to provide to the system, because load pays for it all at some point or another. And so if you have all of these distributed storage resources sitting on your grid and capable of that participation in the system and having some spare capacity, whether that's you know certain times of the year or day or whether that's just in between them doing their other activities, 
that's value to go get to lower cost of service. It seems like there's potentially some technical challenges here in distinguishing between a storage device providing wholesale service versus providing benefits to a local utility. I guess I'm wondering sort of who's going to figure out all of these challenges. Is that something that's going to be the RTO's responsibilities ultimately to work through these issues? Well, you know, the RTOs have been tasked with ensuring there's a pathway for DER storage to participate in their markets, right? This is where this accounting and telemetry question question that I raised earlier is very significant because if you're taking wholesale service from these assets, you need to, as a wholesale market operator, make sure that you have what you think is sufficient accounting associated with that, right? But what I think is has been sort of animating about this is that this is now bringing states and RTOs into a very direct dialogue to the extent that states see this as actually of interest, enabling that distributed storage to use its full versatility to provide both these end-user or distribution services and bulk system services. And so, for example, California and New York, again, have been taking some steps in trying to enable that kind of dual participation, Massachusetts a little bit as well. But this is obviously the area of greatest concern to folks who are looking at what they consider a violation of the Federal Power Act and FERC overreaching its authority vis-a-vis the states in terms of having rules that impact on distribution systems and distribution facilities that are the province under the FPA of state authority. And I can obviously keep going into that, but you're a lawyer? <laughs> yeah, I know that there, well, I, th- so yeah, there's, there's pending litigation about this at the DC circuit. So I think we're actually going to do a separate podcast on all the legal issues around this, the federal state jurisdictional issues that you just mentioned. So maybe on, on the legal issues, we might leave it there for now and hopefully we'll pick it up in another episode. I guess I just want to close. So we're, you know, we're sort of on the cusp of 841 being implemented, at least in part across all these regions. The two compliance filings you mentioned earlier, those are supposed to go into effect next month in December. Tomorrow at FERC's meeting, they're going to, I believe, issue decisions on the other markets, or at least many of the other markets. So those should probably go into effect, presumably, you know, in the coming month or two. You know, what do you see for the next couple of years for the storage industry once these orders are in effect? What, what are going to be the big opportunities? What is this going to open up? I mean, one thing to also bear in mind here is that many of the RTOs and ISOs have requested delays on implementation of Order 841, so (laughs) a whole lot might not be happening just so soon. But once they are implemented, right, what does this unlock? I think that this question, to the extent that the DC Circuit resolves the current case and upholds Order 841 as written, I think that you will see some interesting opportunities, particularly for the distributed side, opening up where you have that good handshake between the state and the RTO. There will be an opportunity then for dual participation that I think has got certainly a lot of folks in the distributed storage segment very animated that this could be a really interesting opportunity. On the bulk system side, front of meter, with all of these changes made, certainly these capacity qualification proceedings could be very determinative of how much storage does or does not participate in capacity markets. I think that if 
the PJM proceeding resolves with something resembling ESA's previous position that less than 10 hour storage provides equivalent RA presently, that you will see storage start to bid into capacity markets. That's probably an expectation in in New York ISO as well. And we're already seeing that now in ISO New England. In terms of the energy market, that's going to be an interesting question to see whether this will unlock storage into the energy markets. And I think that has a lot to do with the extent to which energy market price formation really does create a signal for flexibility. There's a real trade-off, I think, between having, for example, if you're in a capacity market, having that and, and having its scarcity price formation or just reflecting the volatility that might otherwise exist in the system. So that is a to-be-determined and something that I think a lot of folks are interested to see. Well, Jason, I think we're going to leave it there for now. I feel like we've just barely scratched the surface of some of these issues, but I've, I've learned a lot from this conversation and I appreciate you coming on. Thank you. Absolutely. Hey, and you know, one other thing I just want to note here is that we've talked a lot about sort of like the specifics of the Order 841 compliance and like what comes out of this. I think it's really important still to take a step back and recognize that what you have happening here is part of a movement towards more flexible operations of the electric system. Kind of as I was saying at the outset here, while the opportunities that may come to the storage industry as a result of Order 841 might take some time to materialize, fundamentally, if it is enabled to go forward in its current form, Order 841 is transformative because you are allowing this highly versatile asset to show up on the grid and to show up everywhere on the grid to ultimately provides service to the bulk system. That in and of itself is a quiet revolution and one that I am very interested to see how it plays out. All right. Thank you, Jason. Absolutely. All right. Cheers. Cheers.